The goal is not to to be famous or you know be the next Kim Kardashian. God love her, it works for her. But I think for me and most people I know, it's like get real specific on where you can add value in the world, what kind of relationships you want to build. And that's the kind of content you want to put out there. Stand by. I'll be right there. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 336. Today is Sunday, the 14th of July, 2019. And this interview is with Tom Schwab. Tom's a speaker, author of two books, coach, and a successful online entrepreneur. Tom's passionate about helping brands grow from obscure to acclaimed. And having founded Interview Valet, Tom's an expert in helping getting guests onto the podcast they need in order to get heard. In this conversation, we discuss Tom's experience in the United States Naval Academy, the successful trajectory of a startup Goodbye Crutches, and a deep dive into Interview Valet and how to make a great podcast. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Tom Schwab, what a pleasure to have you on the show. I, you actually came across me at some level before I came across you. You were kind enough to do a review of my first book, The Last Ring Home. And uh, obviously there was a personal connection there and we've stayed in touch ever since. And you've created a great business, which is in the heart of podcasting land. So we're going to do a podcast about podcasting. But first of all, tell us, Tom, in your own words, who you are. I am a blessed man. I just look at it. I was born in the Midwest, a suburb of Chicago. I had never been more than 100 miles from my hometown. And then I had the rare opportunity to go to the United States Naval Academy. Uh, Yes, I have a ring, just like your grandfather had a ring. And for me, it exposed me to the world. Um, At the age of 17, I'd never been on a plane. By the time I came home a year later, I'd been around the world. I'd spent a week in Australia. I had learned so many different ways of of looking at the world and people um, that it changed my worldview forever. Uh, so with that, um, I got out of the service, um, went from one stable job to another stable job. Um, my dad told me I was a fool when I left the Navy. It's like, how can you lose, leave that stability? And I said, dad, I just need to do that. And went for a fortune 500 company, uh, went to that stable job and then had the opportunity to go to, um, straight commission. And at that time, my dad called me a dang fool. He says, you, you can't do that. <laughs> you graduated this, to dang fullness. Uh, or, or words to that effect. Uh, but I always was striving, always that entrepreneurial, what was out there. Uh, I love learning. And so from that standpoint, I was able to have experience in engineering and uh, operations and distribution and sales and marketing. And uh, we talked about clarity. Uh, The only clarity I've ever gotten is I look back at each step brought me to where I am today. And today I'm in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, It's a small town halfway between Detroit and Chicago. But it just proves that you can connect with the world any place. Today, if you're isolated or ignorant, 
and you have access to the internet, it's by choice. So uh, I run a company called Interview Valet, and uh, we introduce inspiring thought leaders, authors, coaches, speakers, brands to their ideal customers uh, by getting in on podcast interviews, by getting in on that conversation. Because honestly, today, as people talk about breaking through the noise, I have to laugh. I think most of the time we're just adding to the noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's uh, I'm trying to use the same strategy that my grandfather used, you know, getting introduced and, and um, being where your ideal customers are. Uh, the only difference is that it's the new technology we're using it for. Mm. Uh, so I always look at it as uh, we are the new version of the old thing. Hmm, love it, Tom. So what on earth made you apply to, and then, of course, bravo for getting into the Naval Academy from Kalamazoo? Well, actually, uh, what caused me to apply was ignorance. I did not know how competitive it was. And all I knew that I was 16 years old, looking to go away to college, and I had applied to a couple local uh, universities. And at that time, Northwestern University was $8,000 a year. And that was tuition, room and board. And I remember doing the math thinking, I would never make $32,000 in my life in order to pay this back. Uh, and at that time, uh, there was a, a young man, a midshipman that came back. Um, and he had done what I was to, about to do in the next couple of years. He'd been around the world, been to sea, just ran into him. And uh, he told me about how not only did the education get paid for, but he got a stipend of $60 a month. And I thought, this sounds like a great deal. So out of my ignorance of not knowing how competitive it was, I applied. And by the grace of God, I got in. And I always say the grace of God because I am not qualified, physically qualified to be in the military. Um, I have no depth perception. Now, mm. Some people could say that I'm shallow. Um, I just see the world in 2D. So when I look through binoculars, I see two images. And that was all over my paperwork uh, for my pre-commissioning physical. But they didn't figure that out till my senior year at the Naval Academy. Um, they didn't read that part of the report. And by that time, they'd invested enough money in me and they gave me a waiver. Uh, but to me, it was just that youthful exuberance of not knowing how hard things were. Um, I say the same thing right now that um, my my granddaughter's five years old and she doesn't know that there's things that she can't do. She can't do. So she tries them. And I think at 17 or 16, I was the same way. That's beautiful. So um, what year did you graduate? I was class 87. 1987. Exactly my year as well, Tom. So we are of the same age, exactly. Your experience at, at in 1987 must have been radically different from 1932, or at least how would you describe those differences? Because what I heard was in 1932, it was rare that people actually graduated. I would say, I think that my experience with the class of 32 is probably more similar than my experience, say, with the class of 2019. Hmm. From the standpoint of what I hear about the the Navy today is that it's it's technical. You know, when when your grandfather went off to sea, um, 
He communicated with his family back and forth with letters. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing I did. Now they're out there. They've got um, Facebook Messenger. They can talk real time with that. Um, and so from that standpoint, uh, things in the, uh, the Navy in the 80s were probably more like World War II than they are today. So from my standpoint now when I talk to, to midshipmen and they talk about um, the things they do, the Naval Academy having air conditioning, I'm like, wow, how do you air condition that old building and why would you do that? Um, so from that standpoint, I, I feel like a dinosaur at times when I talk with the, uh, the younger people. And I remember being on a podcast interview and somebody asked me, did it worry me that there were young 20-year-olds that were now running a nuclear power plant? And I thought about it and here I am at the age of 53 and I said, that doesn't bother me. What bothers me is there's young guys my age that are now admirals from my class that are making the decisions. And to me, they just seem way, way too young to be doing that. Hmm. So, Tom, last question on the on the uh, Navy side. You wear your ring. To you, what does a ring symbolize? Because I've, I've learned so much about rings in my experience, but I'd love for you to talk about the ring for you. It's, the ring is it's like a fraternity, right? Um, you can spot somebody that's wearing a Naval Academy ring, Um I only take it off. Uh, the last time I took it off was for an open water swim because I knew I did not want to lose it in the lake. Um, but every time that I put it on, uh, when we put it on before we graduate, it's always our class crest that comes closest to us. So that's the closest to our heart. Um, when uh, after you graduate, you flip it around and it's the, the Naval Academy uh, that's closest to your heart. And I remember looking at old timers um, rings when I was at the academy because you'd always see that and they were just so worn on the, the bottom side there's there's chain links and they're very very prominent when you first get your ring and then after decades the gold is soft you start wearing it off and now it's just smooth and so I, I look at that and it, it reminds me of how long I've been a part of this and that no matter where you are you can you can find somebody in that it starts the stories it starts the conversations um, in fact I was just at a meeting about three weeks ago and I was speaking at it and somebody came up afterwards and their first question was is that an academy ring and I hadn't talked about it in my bio or anything and sure enough his grandfather went to the Naval Academy and so it was just that bond there so uh, even with my kids we've choked um, that my daughter uh, has laid claim, being the oldest heir, that all she wants is my Naval Academy ring, you know. Uh, and I'm like, of all the things, that's what you want? And she said, yes, because I know that's what means the most to you and that you've had it on your finger ever since I've known you. And she's right. Uh, she was born 18 months after I graduated, and uh, she's always known, known me with that on my hand. That's a lovely story. So, um, Tom, you launched Goodbye Crutches, and I, I'm really keen to understand, what, well, explain to us what it, what it is and, and the journey that that took you on, because it obviously is part of the road you've gone on, albeit with crutches. It's interesting because as I tell the story in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> as, as we were going through it, 
it was on it was on a prayer and a whim. So I had been in the medical device industry, uh, selling artificial implants, knees, hips, shoulders, to surgeons and to hospitals. And when 2008 started, uh, and Michigan led the nation, our nation, into the Great Recession, the manufacturers wanted to buy back the distributorships. They wanted to cut out the middleman, and which makes a whole lot of sense until you look in the mirror and you realize, hey, I'm the middleman. <laughs> And uh, they did the right right thing by me. Uh, but as my uh, my bride and I looked at it, um, we had a sideline business, and it was direct to patient, durable medical equipment. So if you ever remember seeing those little knee scooters that people put their their knee on instead of crutches, at 2008 those weren't widely available, and we were renting them locally here in Michigan, and. The thing that struck me is that it was a profitable business model, but even more so that about half of the units that came back would come with thank you notes. Hmm. And I can think of a decade in in medical devices, I have less than five thank you notes, and I've kept each one of those. <laughs> and, and, and they're and, probably just to do with you and their, your relationship and, and who you are. Uh, right, but this is – I was. we looked at it and said, I know we're doing – good with this. We're, we're helping the world, but can we do well with it? Is this scalable? And I knew at that time, I didn't want to build a brick and mortar old school business. Um, it was not the time in the world to do that. So I had read a book by two smart guys out of MIT, uh, Brian Halligan and Darmesh Saw that uh, founded HubSpot. Sure. And uh, it was called Inbound Marketing, How to Use Content to Attract, Engage, and Delight. And I looked at that and thought, hmm, this should work for e-commerce. And once again, just like when I was 17 years old, I didn't know what I didn't know and thought, let's give it a try. And uh, we were one of HubSpot's first e-commerce case studies. Uh, Beretta USA, the oldest company in the world, was right up there with us. Um, so it really taught me the new world of how you could use the Internet um, to help people to serve, uh, that uh, those people that provide the answers get the trust and the respect and, uh, you know, building a relationship, not just a transaction. So uh, we took that company from a regional player to a national leader, sold that company off in about three years, and it really taught me about how to use the Internet, um, the new world that we live in. And uh, it's great because now I look back and everything along the journey, you know, the the Naval Academy, the discipline, the, the learning – the nuclear power on how to systematize something, how to build a culture and a process around that. The the corporate world that taught me sales and marketing, um, even distributorship, uh, all of those things have come together to where we are now. You mentioned at the very outset this notion of what your grandfather taught you, uh, sort of you know the old-fashioned values, and mixing that into what you're talking about with goodbye crutches on answering the questions that people want to know about and building relationships. How would you advise people who want to craft that kind of trust, even answer the right questions and then build those relationships? What are, what are the things that we, we should be doing, maybe reverting back to your grandfather, but also just in general, to craft that kind of long-termness and trustworthiness that uh, established you? I would have to go back to the worst business advice I ever got. 
And that came from my grandfather. And it's the only wrong thing that old Irishman ever told me. Here I am, 17 years old, having a beer with him before I go to the Naval Academy. Tisk tisk. Uh, he probably thought it was my first beer, but I can still remember what what Jimmy Cunningham told me. He said, "Choose carefully who you drink with, because you can't choose who you work with." Now, for him, that was true. Hmm. You know, he was a, a mechanic in a small town. If you didn't live within ten miles of him, you weren't his customer. And so he had a limited amount of customers. That was his world. But Minter, that's not our world today. We've got an unlimited amount of customers. And so with that, I look at it and say, be careful who you drink with, but even be more careful of who you work with, right? Because if I don't want somebody to, to have that that conversation, that relationship of, of having a pint with them, I sure don't want them around my family. I don't want them around my business. I don't want them around my employees, my other customers. So I think it starts with that of who do you want to work with? Who do you want to have those conversations with? Who do you want to service? Um, who do you want a long-term relationship with? And this idea that it's everybody, um, if you're having a conversation with everyone, you're having a conversation with no one. And uh, so that the goal is not to to be famous or, you know, be the next Kim Kardashian. God love her. It works for her. But I think for me and most people I know is like get real specific on where you can add value in the world, what kind of relationships you want to build. And that's the kind of content you want to put out there. Uh, you know, after a while, everybody knew that uh, if you had a question about your car, go talk to Jimmy Cunningham. Well, I think it's the, the same thing where if people have a question about your niche, if you're that person that they go to, um, if you're that – I've heard somebody the other day refer to it as key person of influence um, in that niche, that's what's important. So to me, it's um, it, it's really figuring out what you have to offer the world and who you'll put on this this earth to, to serve because it's – it's not all the billions of people. Uh, it's your small tribe. Mm. Well, I'm a big believer in that. Uh, Daniel Priestley, perhaps is the name associated with Key Person of Influence. I, he began it out of Australia, and I worked with him on it. KPI, as we call it. Um, cool. So, uh, Tom, let's get into Interview Valet, because obviously I'm hugely interested in podcasting. As I told you before we got online, uh, the Global Editors Network podcasting is really landed as a thing in media where we've we've got nearly 40% of Americans listening to podcasts. Uh, they're on, on the Himalaya in China. There are purportedly 70 million podcasts uh, being originated out there. And, and so we, we, we're in a space that is obviously in a good space and growing. So take us through Interview Valet. When did you get into it? How did it come about? Really, it came about as an evolution. So as I was in my sabbatical phase between Goodbye Crutches and whatever I was going to do next, I was helping some people that I was in a mastermind with. And they said, could you help me with my digital marketing? Sure, I'd love to. And one of the things that I saw is for some people, writing a blog was a homework assignment. And I'll count myself as one of those people. Um, I'm an engineer by heart, 
Um, I joke that English is my second language. I'm not sure what my first one is. But I've written a lot of blogs in my life, but it was always like a homework assignment. For us to talk here is fun. It's easy. And I noticed this with some of the people that I was helping. And so I wondered, I hypothesized, could you use podcast interviews much the same way we used to use guest blogs? So instead of writing a blog, putting it up on your own website and getting it seen by a limited number of people, could you guest, uh, you know, blog, you know, could you get on Huffington Post, Wall Street Journal, wherever that audience is, get that know, like, and trust, get that audience and get the authority that comes back from that. So I started to test that with podcast interviews. And originally I was blown away by the conversion rates. A good blog will convert one to 2% visitor to lead. And we were seeing 25 and 50%. And at first I thought, no, it's got to be a niche. It's got to be, um, it's got to be a personality. And so I went back to my, my nuclear power days and tested everything, refined it. And what I realized, no, it's a system, right? If somebody listens to you for 30 or 45 minutes um, and they resonate with you, it's almost like a personal introduction. Just like my grandfather would do at the uh, at the country club. Well, we're at this digital country club. We're mentors in introducing me to his friends, and so we started to test that. We started to uh, refine it, and I didn't want to build another service agency. So I thought I'm going to write a book. I wrote the book, um, put it out there. It sold well, and then people said, "You need a course for this." So I put together a course. And I never took it out of beta because it sold well, but I could see from the back end that people weren't getting through it. They weren't um, getting results with it. Mm. And so as I would ask them, you know, most of the people would lie to me and say, oh, it's great. Uh, I'm just waiting to implement it. And I'm like, just ask me for your money back. I see you've only gotten through chapter two of six. Just ask for your money back. I'll give it to you. Um, but the ones that were honest said, you know, you've given me a cookbook, you've given me the videos on how to do it, but I don't want to do this. I want to be the guest. I want you to take care of the rest. And so in 2015, based on people asking for it, we started to beta test this done for you full service agency. And it worked so well that in early 2016, we took it out of beta, uh, called it interview valet. Um, and now we've grown to a company of 16, uh, nice. all, all, uh, geographically diverse, uh, employees. Uh, but, uh, you know, not everybody wants to live in Kalamazoo, Michigan with me. Uh, so we're all in the United States, but geographically diverse. We serve about 90 different clients at a time and, uh, throughout the world. So to me, it's, um, it's amazing. You know, like I said, my, I tell my mom, we introduce people, that should know each other. So our entire mission is to personally introduce inspiring thought leaders to millions of ideal customers that they could serve for the betterment of all. So you and I know that podcasting is, is doing well. Uh, and how, how, how would you describe why it's doing so well? I think it's the medium and the flexibility of it. And first of all, I think to even call it podcasting, I think in five years we may look back on that and laugh 
even today I've asked my daughters, what does the pod stand for in podcasting? And they have no idea because they don't know a world with an iPod. And um, other people I ask, do you listen to a podcast? And they'll say no, but then they'll start talking about some radio show that they listen to. And I'm like, well, technically that is a podcast. Right. You know, uh, There's other people that will put um, uh, the video up and they'll watch that. Well, is that a podcast? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I think what it is is that this medium – gives us the ability to produce the way we want and for people to consume the way they want. Not only consume it, but at the time they want, so it's evergreen, uh, at the speed they want. Uh, Studies show that 70% of the consumers in the United States uh, listen at podcasts sped up. I typically listen at 2x as I run at half x. Um, (laughs) And it's just because my mind wanders. And if I don't speed it up, I don't concentrate on it. Hmm. And so from that standpoint, I think it's it's this great medium that we can tell stories, um, we can easily communicate and then repurpose it. So, you know, somebody asked me, you know, if, if podcasts now at 40 percent of the U.S. population listens to those, when do you think it'll get to 100 percent? And I had to think about that. And it's like, I don't think it ever will. Newspapers and televisions never got to 100 percent. Ten percent of the U.S. population is hearing impaired. Deaf people aren't going to listen to a podcast, but they can take that transcript, which is so easy to do now, and they can consume it that way. People can take the videos or put some B-roll footage over it, um, and they can listen to it that way. I think we're getting to the point now where very soon we're not going to we're going to be able to index the videos and the podcasts for not the entire segment or the entire episode, but even segments in it. So people will be able to find the segments they want. You know, Google just came out in early 2019 and um, acknowledged that they're they're transcribing and they're, um, they're crawling all of the podcasts. So I don't think it's going to be long before they can tell you what podcast episode it is or what YouTube video it is and tell you where in that you should start listening. So uh, I, I think what we're doing makes sense. It's the new version of the old thing, communicating, telling stories, getting people to know, like, and trust us. Um, and where it's going to be in the future, I think it's going to be the same way. It may look different. We may call it different, but it's still communicating the same way. I love. I, I was just thinking about this notion of, of how it's similar to the old days, and and why video isn't even more similar at some level, but it it does harken back to the old days of the the vinyl record, it, it the, the the radio shows where they would tell stories. You know, the shadow knows only the shadow knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men, and the imagination that goes without having the video that sort of tells you, like a ice pick in the forehead, what it is, and and somehow I I get this feeling that. You can't hide from being real in the audio thing. You can't really hide in video. But somehow, this intimacy being in the ear, not in the eyes, it's sort of in your mind in a different way. And somehow, it it just creates a different relationship as opposed to seeing in a video format. Harvard University had their first ever 
conference on podcasting last year. It was called Sound Education. And hmm. they made the point that this is the golden age of podcasting. And they had a wonderful keynote where they talked about the similarities between radio and podcasting in the early days. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. There's that authenticity that comes through with audio and sometimes not even over-engineered audio. I, I sometimes think the best podcasts are the ones where you're sitting down in a diner and there's two people in the booth behind you that are just talking. Sometimes that is, you know, at 2 a.m. after the, the pubs uh, close. There are other times it's 8 a.m. over breakfast. And you want to listen in, and it would be rude for you to join in the conversation. It'd be rude for you to turn around and watch them. But there's just something about listening in. And as you talked about the the stories over over audio, I think of like Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. If you listen to that on the radio um, or the recordings of that, it is amazing. And I remember watching a a remake of it on video, and it was hilarious. I think if I read the book, I would know, oh, it's just um, it's just a story. But when you listen to it, um, there's something just real about it and, and intimate because as you listen to it, one thing that we can't do is multitask by listening. Um, so when we do listen to something, we focus on it. Mm. It's like the idea of reading a book and then seeing the film. And why so often that's a deception is because your imagination has created these characters, uh, a beauty that's in your eyes, the one and and the imagination of things. And when you make it so real in the video, it's disappointing because it's not up to the par of your imagination. And I think it also goes from how people learn. Some people are learned from books. Other people learn from hearing. So at the Naval Academy, I would be much better off going to class, listening and taking notes, or the night before a test, we called them gouge sessions, where everybody would come together and they would talk about, you know, what's going to be on the test? How do you do this? I, was, I would do better with those than I would just going back to my room and reading the text, hmm. because that's how I learned. And I, I think... Different people learn in different ways. And I think um, you can see this even in the roles they do. I had a conversation with uh, Christopher Lockhead, who's a four-time CMO. He's got a – well, play, he was the co-author of, of Play Bigger there. And uh, he's got a learning difference. He's, he's dyslexic, and he swears that many people in the C-suite also have that. And you know, you won't give them a 150-page document to read. You come in and they want to talk to you about it. They want to ask you questions. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how they learn. Even now, um, I say that I, I, I read two to three books a week. Honestly, I listen to two or three books a week and I listen typically at 2x. Um, mm. I, I, I bought the physical copy of your book, but that was after I had listened to the audible copy mm -hmm. of it. And so from that standpoint, um, that's how I, quote unquote, read. I read with my ears. And there's nothing like the other element uh, in narrated audible by the author. I mean, presuming the voice is good and the reading is well done. I'm just listening right now to the end of Becoming, um, or Belonging, sorry. 
Oh, Becoming, yeah, by um, Michelle Obama. And, and she's a marvelous narrator. So um, I was just going to make a call out to my friend Siobhan McHugh, who, um, for those of you who are interested in the state of podcasting, she does a thing called the Radio Doc Review out of Australia. And it really looks at what is great podcasting, and, and it is a, a force to be held. So, Tom, when you are, are doing your work, you've now obviously come across a lot of podcasts. Typically, you're presumably looking for inserting people into interview-style podcasts. If, correct me if I'm wrong. And what I'd be interested to hear from you is what makes for a good podcast that's findable uh, and uh, and has long-term success. I think we can go back to calling this the golden age of podcasting, looking at what makes a great TV program or what makes a great radio program. Sometimes I'll go back and listen to or watch the early television and I scratch my head and go, people actually spent time watching this? There was an evolution and the ones that stick around that are still classics are the ones that tell stories. The ones that tell timeless things. And I think that's what we need to focus on. And I think early on in podcasting, uh, you saw parallels to easy interviews done by the host and the guest. So it's very easy if you give me five or six questions that you ask every guest. It's easy for you as a host. It's easy for me as a guest. But it's not interesting. Mm -hmm. And it gets stale very quickly. Totally. Mm -hmm. uh, and so from that standpoint, I think it's those conversations, the stories, the follow-ups that go beyond the talking points. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's the, if I watch MSNBC or um, you know, any of the, the, the shows out there, I know that the leader is going to come there with the same PR approved talking points. Um, it's, it's going to be, they've got the host has an agenda. The guest has an agenda and we're going to work it out here in, in five minutes. And Oh, by the way, it could be edited. So you never know to me, talk, talk about inauthentic at some level, right? It's all prepared. Exactly. It's like, it's like another advertisement. Right. It's just a, a different different way of doing it. And I don't think you learn about either person. Um, and even the information that you learn is probably already out there. So to me, it's that that backstory of how can you have a conversation? And the best hosts are the ones that are curious that mm -hmm. go down different areas um, and bring up timeless points and timeless lessons and even help the guest learn. By follow-up mm. questions, off I've been on over 1,200 podcast interviews, and there's probably 150 of them that I would consider therapy sessions for myself, where they ask a question where I have never thought about that before, or why did you do that? And to me, those are interesting conversations. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things we look at with our with our clients is the message, right? Are you interested in being interesting? Because if all you want to do is an infomercial and sell a product, podcasts are not the way, place to do that, nor do we want to work with you on that. So I think people that have a, a self-awareness, an openness, a transparency um, to go beyond just the talking points and are interested 
and having an interesting conversation. The, the podcasts I see taking off now are the authentic conversations. And some of them are conversations that you may not resonate with. That's fine. They, they weren't made for you. Uh, other ones are. And, and to me, those are the timeless ones. Um, and I think that this is an evergreen media. So we want to make sure that the content we put out is timeless. Now, there are some podcasts that could be talking about you know, local sports or local politics. And those are those are very timely. Right. So uh, I really don't care about it after the election. Uh, we had uh, one client that uh, worked with us um, that he was a, uh, a Fox News contributor and he was on their cybersecurity. And the point that he made it is that you've got to be careful on evergreen content because everybody wants you to make a prediction. Well, if you make the prediction before the election, afterwards, there's going to be two types of people. One of them is going to say everyone knew that. And the other ones that say, I can't believe that idiot missed that one. Or so he said, it's a no win. And so he said, it's a different medium. So if it's a live on demand medium, yeah, you talk about the, the daily things that are going on. But podcasts that are evergreen, if you want your content to be evergreen, you need to talk about that higher level things. You can use modern day examples. Um, but don't be in the middle of a podcast and wish, wish somebody, you know, um, a, a Merry Christmas. Um, don't, for God's sake, we're recording this in the summer. Don't wish them a happy Fourth of July and Independence Day, right? Because not only are you saying that this is the time of season we're talking about this. So if you hear it in the winter or if you're in Australia and it's already the winter, it's just going to sound dated and timely. Mm-hmm. Or if you, you know, you're talking to someone in London and you mention Independence Day, it's like, no, that's called Trader Day. <laughs> um, so from that standpoint, try to keep it um, as generic. I don't want to say generic, as timeless yeah. uh, to different audiences. You don't want to be so generic that you try to appeal to everyone, but be conscious of the audiences you're talking to and the times you're talking to. That's great stuff, Tom. So it makes me think, you know, as I was listening to you, on the one hand, I have this this narrative, which is in order to be interesting, you have to be prepared to be personal. Because in the end of the day, giving me this business success and I ran this and I did this great product and I, you know, I'm successful. My earnings went up 18% and so on. People want to know about that because they want to replicate success. But at the same time, if you want to be interesting, somehow you've got to be in your dark side. You've got to be in the mistakes you've made, the the feelings you've had, or the, you know, the the fact that you can bring in your daughter and your grandfather into this conversation. It's interesting because I hadn't thought of it that way, but I was listening to a podcast the other day. They were talking about AI, and I guess most of the press releases now for earnings reports are all done through artificial sure. intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they know if it, it, it beat expectations, you're supposed to say it skyrocketed. So an AI, a computer, can can do the press release for my business. But for an actual discussion and insight, a computer is not going to be able to tell the stories and, and draw corollaries on different things. Um, we had a discussion here about the Naval Academy, what the rings meant to me. 
I've never had that on any other podcast interview. Um, I, I, since, you know, we were first brought together through your grandfather, um, I felt more comfortable talking about my grandfather. So there's different things there. And I, uh, Brene Brown talks about, you know, courage and vulnerability and that, that Netflix document, uh, uh, show that she did. I was just watching that with my mother-in-law, and she mentioned about how some people thought courage and vulnerability um, were on opposite sides, and it's like no, they go together. Hmm. And so, if you want to have a great podcast interview, you've got to have the courage to have a great podcast interview and and be vulnerable, be real. Um, and for some people, um, that can be scary, and for some industries, that can be that can be tough. You look at uh elon musk got in a whole lot of trouble um uh, being on a podcast interview and 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 being uh hi being, uh, being <sighs> himself i mean um that's not something that you would expect from the normal ceo uh but from elon musk i'm like didn't surprise me um so from that standpoint that was that was a podcast interview that was not um a, a business uh cnbc interview right uh, so there there's differences on those well, uh, totally. And, you know, so many of these CEOs who are, let's say, I call them more mercenary CEOs who, let's say, didn't found the company and aren't the company in their DNA. You know, they may think they are, but they, you know, got a great career within it and they finally promoted to CEO as opposed to Musk starting it where he is like a Branson or any of these other massive founders. And they, they spell it and they live it and they dream it, they sweat it. And they are it. But so many businesses fail, business leaders who are not those founders, fail at the hurdle where it, it moves into my personal because maybe that you sort of exemplify vulnerability, imperfection, uh, and uh, that's going to worry people. I, I, first of all, I have a chip on my shoulder. I don't want to talk about that. Second of all, it's going to worry my shareholders. And, and, it, and then you end up with these bloody, you know, botic, robotic type of interviews in podcasts, but also personalities and, and, and interesting lists, brands. And repetitive too, because it's the same interview that you've heard on all the different media outlets. Mm. And so what's interesting about it, I could, I could read the press report and know that it's, I I know the talking points. I know what they're going to be mentioning on there. Um, and you're right. I think it's a, a different person. I, I heard the concept from Eddie Yoon, who uh, uh, for Harvard Business Review wrote a book called Super Consumers, and he called missionaries and mercenaries. Mm-hmm. So like you said, the mercenaries are they're there. They're getting paid. They've got a job to do. But do they have that zeal? Do they know the story from the very beginning? Um, and as you said that, it's like having an interview with somebody that's got that mercenary zeal uh, is a whole lot different than a tactician uh, that's there doing a job, a mercenary. So as you were speaking, the second thing that came into my mind was uh, Brian Solis's new book, uh, Life Scale. And let's say the first eight or so books that he, that he wrote were all very much focused on transformation, how to survive, using tech, new digital. He was the number two person on that recent list of the top influencers. And and there's been a huge landswell of interest in the book because it, actually he's just opened his kimono to his life and, and expressed weakness, true vulnerability a la Brene Brown. 
So you got that that on the one hand, but that's sort of hard to you know necessarily convert into my life and and the way I'm going to improve. But on the other hand, going to the China market where we were talking about that before where there's this huge knowledge e-commerce and you also mentioned the students that you know might use audio podcasts to complement their studying it does need to be practical so as much as we might whine on or or wind on a story that's truly personal and and spills my guts on the other hand there does need to be or there is a market an appetite for god how do i make money how do I convert from two to three percent? How do I, uh, you know, get better Facebook ads? And where there's a sort of a stream practicality to it. In China, the the one that the, the intensity of the competition to get into university and so on has made the audio podcast the the true differentiator. So people will pay for that to get really solid business advice. How do I become a better leader? How do I do this? And it's really all about how tos. So there is a market for that. And and yet I so agree that, you know, stories beget stories and and only through authenticity and intimacy in the ear will you get garner a really interesting uh, popular audience in your podcast. And I think in the U.S. what we see is people will use the strategic discussions from a monetization standpoint to move people to their website to buy the tactical um implementation because the tactical is changing all the time and no matter how great of a communicator i am i know that people are listening to me they're multitasking Mm -hmm. the chances that they're going to listen and execute on everything um i I know that that's not you mentioned daniel daniel priestley i listened to his book I, i couldn't remember his name but i remember his voice and the first mm-hmm. thing I did after listening to his book is I went to the website, I signed up for the information, uh, got more information about him, got the physical book to go to that next level. So I think that's where people are doing it. And um, the tactics are changing so quickly that I think um, it can be even dangerous to talk about those on a podcast. So a lot of times podcasts, may take two to three weeks or two to three months from recording to going live. Mm -hmm. So I I think of so many podcasts I've listened to or books that I've listened to, and they'll refer to a platform that doesn't even exist. Uh, And um, Inbound Marketing, uh, Brian and Darmesh's book, they had to come out with a new version of that, I don't know, five or six years afterwards. Because if you read the original one, it's almost funny some of the platforms they talk about, the mm-hmm. things that were that big at that time, uh, you know, and now they don't even exist or the readers are, are listening going, what is that? Um, so from that standpoint, the tactics are changing so quickly um, that if you do um, go off of the tactics, I think you're almost like a, uh, almost like a sports podcast then. Maybe you'll get people coming back all the time to listen to what the new sports score is or the new tactic, but don't expect people to uh, to download past episodes and and listen to the recap of last week's game. Hmm. Well, it's funny. So a shout out to Daniel, to Halligan, lots of good friends in common. Uh, 
So one last question for you, Tom. You you know you mentioned this idea of, of sending questions and then having the, the exact answers you always want. Is is it your recommendation for me as an interviewer not to ever send out questions? I think it's very helpful to send out a theme of where we're going with this. Of hey, here are the things that I think my audience would be interested in. Here are the things that I'm curious about. Here's where I would like to go. Um, and I think that's very, very important as opposed to just showing up from the guest side point and not knowing where we're going with this. What's what's the goals? Um, and I think that for me, that was very helpful. But to have 10 questions where no matter what I answer, number five, number six is going to come. Uh, there are there are times where, you know, um, you know, if they asked me what book is on your nightstand um, and I answered it, you know, that uh, I just killed killed my wife and her bloody bodies at my feet. They would answer. That's great. And they'd go on to the next question. <laughs> and I, I swear there are interviews <laughs> like that. And I, I, I just look and it's like this isn't a conversation. Um, it's almost like um, if you've ever been to the job interview where the person is just going down, has to ask you all of these questions. But they they really don't care. Um, they're just trying to get through it. Um, so to to start out and to answer your question is like, yeah, I would love to know where you want to go with this, where we can bring the most value mm -hmm. for this, mm -hmm. um, because um, that way it gets my mind of where we're going in this. And I don't go off on tangents, uh, but uh, I think there's benefit in that. Um, but if you follow a script and stop stop listening to the answers and following up on that that's where it becomes dangerous yeah and, and i mean at the end of the day as i i listen i i do want to listen to you but when you're interviewing sometimes you, you need to so listen and you don't want to interrupt because you want to listen but at the same time you need the next flow and and which part of especially if it's like a five minute you know monologue of sorts you, you know, which part do you want to pick up on and, and surf into next? And you, know, you can choose, you know, the second minute, the third minute, the fourth minute, the very last thing that's said. Tom, it's been great having you on the show. I really, really enjoyed it. I feel like we maybe should do it again. At the end, in the minimum, I felt like we could have gone on for a lot longer. So, but time is of the essence and we want to respect our audience's ears and time and all that. So, as you know, how's, what's the best way to connect with you if, if there are people that are interested in, in getting, using your services to get onto shows, how to get into that and uh, get your book, of course. Well, thank you, Minter. I was going to say the only thing that could have made this better is if we were both sitting down in the same place. I, I, I hope our paths cross in real life uh, soon. Uh, I also know that as people are listening to podcasts, they're doing many things. They're multitasking. They're um, they're listening at 2x speed as they run at half x speed. So I always try to make it easy. If you just go to interviewvalet.com forward slash mentor, I'll put everything right there. So uh, everything we talk about, I, I freely give away the book um, that I wrote. So if you'd like a copy of that, that'll be right there. There's a checklist that we use before all of our podcast interviews. If you're doing, um, any podcast interviews, please download that checklist. Um, 
Uh, in the military, we've said checklists are written in blood. Make sure it's somebody else's blood. So learn, learn from other people's mistakes. Um, and then finally, I'll put all my social media on there. Uh, if I could be of any service to you, please reach out to me. I'd love to, to get to know you. The richness of our lives is the richness of our relationships. Beautiful thing, Tom. Thanks so much. Thank you, Minter. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzoir, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.